From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. Today. The victory for the voters of not just Georgia, but the country. A federal judge has ruled that Georgia's congressional and legislative seats must be redrawn. I'm Greg Bluestein. How the order can help Democrats pick up a seat in the U.S. House and several more in the state legislature. I'm Bill Nygut. A trial is underway in Gainesville to determine if a conservative organization based in Texas was using intimidation tactics when it challenged the registrations of hundreds of thousands of Georgia voters. I'm Tia Mitchell. Hip-hop is now 50 years old, and much of its history is intertwined with politics and activism. Reporter Ernie Suggs joins us to discuss a new AJC documentary on how Atlanta became the center of the rap universe. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Well, as you, I feel like we say this every Friday, it's been a huge news week here in Georgia <laughs> politics. But the other breaking news, Bill Nygut, is that this podcast is about to be a live radio show. The, the twist is that this is with four print reports, excuse me, three print reporters and you. So what's your advice for the rest of us who um, are just not going to do this right? Uh, wait, Let, let's be let's be very clear. We have been working together. We've been re- trading roles to uh, basically host the show and you all have been doing. You're great. I mean, uh, I don't think you have anything to worry about in terms of translating your print work to your uh, radio work. And you, Tia, you're, every time I turn on the TV lately, you're on CNN. So are you, Patricia. Greg, you're on MSNBC all the time. I, you have more broadcast experience these days than I do. One amendment. <laughs> two, two print reporters, a radio host, and a print reporter slash C-SPAN host as well. Oh, well, yes, of course. So, Tia... C-SPAN is known for its wacky callers and for your poker face when you get those calls. Yes. How are are we going to keep our cool under the intense scrutiny of live programming? I, I'll be honest, like, I'm nervous. Not like the first day of, <laughs> like first day of school. At all. Like, first day of school nervous. Okay. Not like we're going to do a bad jitters. job. Yeah. And, guys, we spent, like, what, five hours with each other yesterday doing photo shoots? Super fancy. You know, there was, like, 30 people there. That's true. Greg, this is a major upgrade from the podcast days when it was you in your basement and me in my attic. <laughs> and, um, you know, just 20 minutes of whatever. And now we had we had a crew with like fancy snacks. It was fancy very snacks. fancy. Asian candy. I, don't, I mean, Hello. there was crab, crab tinged uh, delicacies. It was amazing. <laughs> and I have to say, you guys all looked great. I yeah. can't wait for the pictures. Yeah, me too. You had that great brown. Was that a knit uh, yeah. suit, essentially? I don't want to plug, but let's just say my uh, the service I use <laughs> to temporarily obtained garments <laughs> really came through with the dress. And yes, Patricia, Kia rented the runway. Yes, hello. Well, Patricia, I mean, you must have shopped for weeks, yeah. maybe months for your outfit. You know, I did, Greg. I forgot all of my clothes at home <laughs> because I was running so late because I had to go get my kids at school really quickly. So, um, yes, I'll, I left all of my clothes at home. So I walked in and told the very friendly stylist, do you happen to have anything that is two sizes too small? 
and that's what she gave me. I, I thought, but I'm wh- very grateful because I mean, Lord knows I would have been naked otherwise, you, and, and nobody needs great. to see that. You, you, you that, it look, I thought that was your uh, outfit. It looked great. I and do like Blue to dress Steen, two sizes too small. Lustine, they actually got you to take <laughs> off your necktie. Look right now. No oh necktie my now. God. They yeah. said they said act like you're you know. Dress like you're comfortable, and I'm a tie guy for the yeah. most part. But yeah. I, but I'm trying to wean myself off of it. Okay, well, you're a changed oh. man. I'm a changed man. He's a changed man. Well, that is a, that is all we have from this fashion podcast. We're going to be rolling into politics next. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We start with the federal district court decision that could have significant electoral consequences for Georgia. District Court Judge Steve Jones issued a ruling yesterday that requires the General Assembly to redraw maps that the Republican majority put in place after the 2020 census. Jones said the current maps violate the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which prohibits racial discrimination in elections. Um, Greg, we saw this news break yesterday afternoon, and um, we knew it would have specific consequences for maps if um, the judge overturned the previous ones, but his ruling was really very specific about where he wants to see changes. Tell us a little bit about the ruling. Yeah, Patricia, it was a 500-something page ruling, but I think some of the most important passages were on pages 508 and 509, so very deep <laughs> in there, where the judge, Judge Steve Jones, sets out a specific remedy, uh, saying it involves an additional majority black congressional district in West Metro Atlanta, so that would be a new... Uh, a carving out a new majority black U.S. House district. Whose district is that right now? It would, uh, well, he didn't prescribe okay. a certain it's boundary. It's a little bit of Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's a little Barry bit Loudermilk. of David Scott. Uh, oh. Could be Barry Loudermilk. I mean, this is all yeah. West Metro it, Atlanta. It could even be a little bit of Drew Ferguson. Okay. Exactly. He's like South Metro. And then he, he also said two additional majority black Senate districts in South Metro, two additionally majority black House districts in South Metro Atlanta, one additional majority black house district in West Metro Atlanta and two additional majority black house districts in around Macon, Bibb County. So, you know, that's sort of the overall remedy. It's up to lawmakers to to now draw those districts. So it could involve multiple state legislative incumbents and, of course, multiple house incumbents. But the question here is, A, if it goes forward, because, of course, we were expecting Georgia lawmakers, Georgia attorneys to appeal this, ask the 11th Circuit Court of Appeal to stay so this this could be a 2026 issue, not a 2024 issue. But if it's not delayed by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and lawmakers do end up going back to a special session after Thanksgiving in late November, um, 
how lawmakers respond to this will be, of course, will Republicans say, okay, we're going to do exactly what the judge says? Will they try to, you know, kind of be more vague about it? Will they try to push their own maps that protect more legislative incumbents? We're about to find out. That's so interesting. A quick follow up on that. When these maps were drawn the first time around by the Georgia General Assembly, I remember members and staff saying, we we know these will get challenged in court. These were Republicans. So we are drawing these specifically so we don't draw a challenge. What do you think happened to that? Well, what happened is the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. Okay. What, what happened was that Supreme Court decision involving Alabama and now other states um, where uh, this U.S. Supreme Court uh, declined to uphold Alabama maps that were, that were deemed to be uh, illegally diluting the power of black voters, the voting power of the black electorate in Alabama. And that basically set the stage for these rulings, not just in Georgia, but we've seen other deep South states have the same, uh, same issues with their maps. I got it. Tia, talk a little bit more about the members of Congress you think right now are starting to think about maybe this could start putting some changes into the districts they currently represent. So, when you think about what the map was like before 2020, <clears throat> well, you know, before they redrew them, you had Lucy McBath's seat, which was like Cobb, very Cobb. It wasn't only Cobb, but it was very Cobb centric. And Cobb, as we know, has become more democratic, more diverse. Barry Loudermilk went, he had a little bit of like Northern Cobb and then up into the suburbs going into Bartow North County. Bartow Cherokee, I think he had a little bit of going into northwest Georgia. And then far northwest was Marjorie Taylor Greene. And so, and then the Gwinnett Forsyth was the old um, Carolyn Bordeaux seat, which that seat had become very Democratic. And so what the Republicans did was they packed voters into the old Bordeaux seat, made it basically all Gwinnett, very democratic, packed them in. And then what became of that old Forsyth seat is what kind of Rich McCormick now has, very Republican. Um, Lucy McBath, of course, took Bordeaux out because they were fighting over the same democratic seat to give Marjorie, to protect Barry Loudermilk, they moved his district further into northeast Georgia, northwest Georgia so that he could still have plenty of Republican voters and be protected. That then means they needed to get more voters for Marjorie Taylor Greene because you have to have a certain amount of voters in every congressional district. So Marjorie Taylor Greene then dipped down back into West Cobb to get not to make her district more diverse, that wasn't their goal, but their goal was to get her some voters so that the math worked for her district. Yeah, Mar Green is still, Marjorie Taylor Greene's district is still overwhelmingly Republican. Still very Republican. She has a few Cobb precincts. Right, and it was just, again, to give her the, the voters, but the argument is by putting those, wet, and we know they, they were complaining, like, we are west cobb we're diverse we're used to we're a democratic area and now we've been drawn into this ruby red district and so again so you would think that if you're going to take those west cobb voters out of marjorie taylor green's district that means she's got to find some voters from elsewhere 
Again, Barry Loudermilk, Andrew Clyde. But again, the more you shift one way, if you shift her further east into Andrew Clyde, he's going to need more voters. If you shift her further south to Barry Loudermilk, he'll need more voters. Okay, so every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Bill, you have covered loads of districtings and redistrictings and redrawing the lines. (laughs) It's so unusual. It's not unusual. This is actually just the way it works. The people drawing the lines are the ones who also have to live with the lines that they're drawing. And typically, I find they're a lot more concerned about those state legislative maps because those are the ones that they live with in the General Assembly. I I think that's absolutely correct. Correct, Patricia. That um, and, and that's what we see every redistricting session. It's not just necessarily one party against the other drawing the lines. It's individual legislators who want to make sure that the district that they are holding remains um, in place for them to become to be reelected. But here's hey, let me add to this what, one of the things that's fascinating about this to me. Um, of course, Georgia Republicans have said we didn't. Um, draw district lines on the basis of race. We did very specifically draw them for partisan purposes to enhance Republican majority. Which is, which which is, is legal. Well, and that's my yeah. point. So the United States Supreme Court ruled quite a while ago that partisan gerrymandering is legal. Of as, course, because of the voting. As long as you don't dilute but that's the, the voting power. But that's mm-hmm. the point I was going to make. It's one thing to say we want to preserve our majority, Republican or Democrat, in this case, Republican. But to do that, you often have to draw districts that disenfranchise black voters. So it becomes a really complicated um, matter. Um, so now Republicans will continue to say we were just drawing partisan maps. But Steve Jones and the U.S. Supreme Court in the Alabama case said, sorry, folks, you may call this partisan gerrymandering, but you're mm-hmm. disenfranchising black voters. Bill, what else in that ruling jumped out at you? Um, I was fascinated by, here's what I thought. I was a little surprised to see Judge Jones point to the west part of the state. Um, now, I understand there will be repercussions in some of the northern areas of, of metro Atlanta. Here's the other thing that I thought was interesting. Um Governor Kemp immediately called a special session for November 29th. But majority leader in the Senate, Steve Gooch, was quoted as saying, we've got to do this. We have to redraw the maps. Now, we assume that both Governor Kemp and Senator Gooch are hopeful that there will be a stay to this order and they won't really have to uh, follow uh, through on it. But, um, but the fact is, they're not. Uh, here's my speculation. I'd love to hear what you all think. Remember, we know Alabama ignored the Supreme Court order the first time around. They came back and drew a second map that continued to disenfranchise black voters. The Supreme Court said, all right, your time is up. We're now turning this map over to an independent, to, a, to, to the judiciary. Um, I can't imagine Georgia is going to play that same game. Well, obviously the court thought that Alabama didn't try to live up to what they told well, them right. to do. Um, I don't know, Greg, what do you think that legislative session is going to look like? November 29th, how long does it last, do you think? And what's the strategy going to be? Well, that session will last at least five days. Mm-hmm. Um, Why do you say that? Is that be- because, a rule? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. You can't pass anything in the legislature in a special session without going five days to have the requisite time to committee meetings and calling the, the chamber to order and having votes in both the House and Senate. Um, the, the judge 
mandated that it, that a new map be passed by December 8th. So there is a there they won't be in there for a whole month and no lawmakers want them to be there in a no, whole month don't. because they're <laughs> going to go back. reporters. Nobody um, wants that. And I don't, you know, Georgia's not going to go the same way as Alabama. It's not going to kind of thumb its nose at mm-hmm. the eye of the Supreme Court um, because they saw what is happening in Alabama where the judge will just appoint a special master and the yeah. lawmakers won't have any say in it. Also, I think that Georgia lawmakers might be more more pragmatic than Alabama lawmakers. <laughs> we'll see. Um, but they will do their best to preserve their incumbents. And I've seen different versions of maps out there that do still show, and I don't know if this is feasible under the, the judge's law, but I've seen different you know, maps by analysts that show how Republicans can still cr- draw a majority black new district, but preserve the 9-4 um, Republican advantage. 9-5. Mm. Uh, sorry, 9-5. Mm. Experts say that's that, 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 that was still could run afoul of the judge's ruling. Right. That's the point I was going to make. Like, because... Some people, we know that there was consideration in Sanford Bishop's district, which is southwest Georgia. It's rural. It is got, there's a heavy black population, but that black population is um, starting to decrease over time because black people are navigating to the population centers like Atlanta. And so there's been a lot of discussion over Sanford Bishop's district, we know in the 2020 map, it was drawn in a way that made it more competitive and that Republicans think it's winnable if Sanford Bishop is not the incumbent in the race. Um, So I think that's a place that we need to keep our eye out for because, again, we know every decision will have a reaction. You got to there's just a set amount of people in Georgia. So when you take from one area another area lose one district loses if another district gains how will that affect Sanford Bishop's district yeah I think the lesson from all of this is that we really don't know where all of this is going we've already had some surprises in this process well there's been a second election focused trial that's already underway up in Gainesville WABE Sam Greenglass reports that a federal judge is hearing arguments over a Texas-based group's efforts to challenge voter registrations here in Georgia The lawsuit brought by the group Fair Fight focuses on the voting eligibility challenges of some 250,000 voters during the 2021 Senate runoff. Most challenges were dismissed, but bogged down election offices and tripped up voters. Courtney Davis's mom's vote was challenged in 2022. What if my mom didn't have me to advocate for her? How many others may fall into her category that received a similar letter, and they just gave up. In 2021, Republican lawmakers affirmed individuals' right to file unlimited challenges. True the Vote, which is touted baseless election fraud claims, says their challenges are protected by the First Amendment. I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Thank you, Sam Greenlass, for that terrific report. And our own Mark Nisi from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has reported a great deal on True the Vote and this lawsuit in particular. And he said that uh, just ahead of those um, 2021 Senate re-election runoffs, um, the group True the Vote not only challenged 250,000 voter registrations, they also offered a $1 million <clears throat> bounty and recruited Navy SEALs to oversee polling places. I mean, some kind of some wild stuff in there, Greg. <laughs> Fair Fight said that this all amounts to voter intimidation. Well, yes. Well, that, that's that's been Fair Fight's argument throughout. And remember also that county election boards rejected the vast majority of these voter challenges, but they came after some hearings. They came after a lot of uh, a lot of scrutiny. Um, a, a lot of pressure on some of these voters who were challenged. I mean, think think about having your your voter registration 
as a citizen. You know, you're being questioned by a group that's out of state that doesn't know who you are is just challenging these uh, these in mass under the state's new SB 202, the, the election law that, that, that passed after the 2020 election. And this group, by the way, is also behind that debunked conspiracy movie, 2000 Mules. That's that's how it might be best known yes. in the public lexicon right now. Yeah. Tia, voter intimidation is also a violation of the Voter Rights Act. Yes, but again, True the Vote is going to argue that they were following the law, quite frankly, the way it was written. So I think about the old adage, don't hate the player, hate the game. So it's like if you, for the people who are upset that True the Vote took advantage of the new law, then can you blame the player, True the Vote, or are you blaming the game, which is this new Senate Bill 202 that allowed the player to follow by these new rules that were set. Bill, I remember, we all remember when SB 202 was passed. I don't know that anybody, maybe even the lawmakers themselves, envisioned groups coming in with hundreds of thousands of mass yeah, challenges. That's right. And, but, but, you know, and Tia makes a really important point there. It is 202, which allowed for True the Vote to make all these challenges. And, of course, that, that, that portion of the bill was included, it was part of the aftermath of Donald Trump losing the 2020 uh, election here. And uh, it did open the door for an organization like True the Vote to come in. And I want to say, I no one can predict the future, but you can't say that in debate over Senate Bill 202, there weren't Democrats and voting rights groups that raised the possibility of this exact thing happening. That was part of their argument against the bill, including their argument that there was no justification for it. They said it could be used to intimidate voters in the future. So again, I not making a decision as far as whether true the vote crossed the line. But if a lawmaker is to say, well, we didn't know this is how the legislation was going to be used. That means they weren't listening to people who Mm -hmm. warned them exactly that. Mm -hmm. I would love to be in this courtroom because this is like a heavyweight 15 round matchup between (laughs) fair fight. The organization wants to expand the right to vote for all Georgians and true the vote, trying to make sure that fewer Georgians get to vote. So in some ways, this is a really fascinating matchup of two very strong opposing organizations. Yeah, although Bill, they would say they were not trying to make fewer vote, but just trying to defend against fraudulent votes, of yes. which none were found. Yes. <laughs> so. Now, Greg, um, one last point. Uh, uh, true the vote and the movie 2000 Mules were an absolute rallying cry. They were uh, screenings of 2000 Mules ahead of even the 2002 elections. It, it's a, it has been a big way for people on the far right to even socialize, to have fundraisers. Um, have you seen any softening of this opinion among um, Republicans who said that they still think that that 2020 election was stolen? Our polls... Uh, show, I'm looking, anecdotal evidence, it still comes up at Republican events, at Republican yeah. grassroots events. There are those like Governor Kemp that say, focus on the future, not the past, and he has many allies now. But there's polls show a significant number of likely Republican voters in Georgia and beyond still believe in the election fraud lies. Yep. Well, they believe it because they were told it, even though it wasn't true. Um, well, when we come back, hip hop is 50 years old, and virtually from the start, political messages have been a part of the music. 
We are going to talk to AJC reporter Ernie Suggs about the politics of rap and how Atlanta became a central um, hub, really, for hip-hop and rap music, including for some of the biggest names in the genre. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. And welcome back to Politically Georgia. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com podcasts and get just six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. The team at the AJC is debuting its brand new film, The South Got Something to Say, to mark the 50th anniversary of hip-hop and Atlanta's central role in the genre. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. Since we so heavily influenced through soul music, it was never a ceiling on the things that we could do. I didn't realize it would be such a huge moment in hip-hop history. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. No one can deny the power of the South now. As goes the South, so goes the rest of the country. The AJC's race and culture reporter, Ernie Suggs, joins us now to talk about the documentary and the politics of hip-hop. Ernie, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, good morning. Thank you for having me. So, Ernie, tell us a little bit about how this film came together. Well, obviously, as you mentioned, this is the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, so every paper, every newspaper, media company in the country was trying to do something about that. So we wanted to be unique and how we approached it. So we wanted to do a documentary, but we also wanted to really, really put a focus on Atlanta's key role in the evolution of the last 50 years of hip hop. And Atlanta has played an amazing role, particularly since 1995, or particularly since 1992, uh, with the advent of the Arrested Development going on to Goody Mob and Outkast. So, and now what you're looking now, with people like Future and T.I. and Killer Mike. So Atlanta's played an outsized role in hip-hop, and we wanted to kind of reflect that. So our documentary basically tells the story of Atlanta over the last 50 years, but with a hip-hop soundtrack, so to speak. Hey, Ernie, um, it's Tia. I wanted to ask, We I heard Senator Warnock's voice on the trailer we just heard, and we know that hip-hop is inherently political and has been used to document social issues and activism. There's part of the documentary that talks about the shootings of Rayshard Brooks and George Floyd in the context of, of hip-hop. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. I mean, you're, you're exactly right. Hip-hop has always served as a voice of political outrage or political awareness. I came into hip hop in the 1980s. Well, I came into hip hop when I was a kid, but I became fully engulfed in in the 1980s with Public Enemy and KRS-One and people like that. And now what you're seeing is this changing political climate 
of 20, you know, 2020 is a perfect example. And we talk about that a lot in the film about how Rayshard Brooks and George Floyd, um, their, how their killings, how their, how their deaths kind of serve as guideposts for what hip hop can say and do and be a part of. So as you noted in the film, Raphael Warnock is in it. We got four mayors in it. We have very, very compelling commentary from Keisha Lance Bottoms, the former mayor of Atlanta, who talks about her role and the role that hip hop played in kind of calming the city. Because those of you who live in the city understand how tense and dangerous, potentially dangerous it was in 2020 that summer and how, you know, hip hop came. And, and you know, it, it's it's, it also says a lot that a mayor like Keisha Lance Bottoms or Andrew Young or Kasim Reed can call on someone here in Atlanta because everybody here in Atlanta, Atlanta is a big town, but it's also a small town where everyone knows each other and everyone's entwined in each other's lives and businesses and careers. So when you're able to call upon a rapper to work in a political arena, that's something that Atlanta is very unique in its sense of have, being kind of a, 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 a small town and a big town's body. Ernie, uh, I want to ask you about someone else who's in the documentary, in the hip-hop documentary that's debuting next week, um, who has played a direct role in, in Georgia politics. That's Killer Mike, of course, whose legal name is Michael mm-hmm. Rinder, who endorsed Bernie Sanders um, back in the, I think it was 2016, and then again in 2020, if, I, if, I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken, but also has played a role in, in state politics uh, I remember reporting about an uproar he created when he showed up with Governor Kemp, a conservative Republican, and, and they were trading compliments with each other that, that, that infuriated a lot of uh, supporters of, of Stacey Abrams and other Democrats. Can you talk about how how you can, you've can you seen hip-hop artists try to um, influence the political scene here in Georgia? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, like rap rappers like African-Americans are not monolithic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, they, they represent African-Americans because they're not monolithic. So a person like Killer Mike or a person like uh, Waka Flocka, Waka Flocka Flame, um, they are very, very political. And we may not, everyone may not agree with what their political leanings are or what they always say. Um, it's always still important that we have their message out there. So, yeah, Killer Mike, it plays a very integral role in the, in the film, as you all will see on November 2nd when you come to the premiere. Um, because uh, he is a rapper, but because he is very, very political. He has a lot of stuff to say that's all, often very controversial. So getting his voice out there, getting Waka Flocka's voice out there, getting T.I.'s voice out there, they're all very important. And it's also very important to understand that politicians rely on these guys. Um, you know, it's not a mistake that Kemp or, you know, Kemp would call out or, or Bernie Sanders would call out and want Carol Mike on their side. And it's also not a mistake that Stacey Abrams' team would be yeah, upset, or they would have concerns about Killer Mike talking about something that they are not necessarily in agreement with. So they play a very important role because they speak to a lot of people. They have a large microphone. Ernie, it's Bill Nygut. I want to step away from the politics um, of uh, rap and talk about it as a genre. When rap came out, I mean, I know that we can go back, really, I think you'll correct me if I'm wrong, to like the mid-70s or so when there was a beginning, kind of an early movement toward rap music. But eventually, it overtook almost every other form of pop music that we think about when we think about, you know, rap music is, is not um, Elton John. Rap uh, yeah. music is not Fleetwood Mac. I mean, all those people who were so popular, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, all of a sudden, the music culture changed so dramatically. 
I remember doing an interview with you, God, Lamont Hawkins, who was a member of Wu-Tang Clan from Staten Island, which is one of the great New York hip-hop rap groups. And I want you to talk about what he described to me, how members of a rap group or individuals, they start by coming up with and laying down beats and then build around the beats the messaging, the lyrics, what they want to put out there, and how all of this became such an important cultural force in the whole world of music. Well, as you, what you're saying is that rap is truly an art form. I think a lot of people yes. early on didn't understand it was an art form, that these people are poets and artists and, and thinkers. You know, rap started in 1973 in the Bronx. I'm, I grew up in Brooklyn, so I'm right, I'm five miles away from where it started. And I think that as I was coming up, and I was just trying to use myself as a, as a narrative example, as I was coming up in the 1980s as a child, you know, Run DMC and KRS-One and, and, and all these rappers, even the Wu-Tang Clan, a lot of people were still seeing these as fringe organizations. As you can remember, MTV didn't even play rap. MTV didn't even play black music. So rap was this thing that people thought was going to go away. I remember one of Run DMC's earliest videos where they talked about, you know, they had Larry Bud Melman on and he talked about how this is just a fad and it's going to go away. Now you're seeing that as it has grown, it has become the dominant form of not only music. And I want this, I want your listeners to understand that, but culture, you know, rap music and hip hop touches art. It touches fashion. It touches politics as we talked about. So it has become this overriding sense of what the music is. You look at, you look at someone like Beyonce who, had a billion dollar concert this summer, you know, uh, that her, her, her current style is, you know, this kind of disco dance stuff that she's doing. And Tia, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Cause I'm just kind of um, going here. But. We need, we need, Maya, Tia. We need <laughs> Maya Prabhu on this episode. She's the AJC's resident Beyonce stan. But she is hip hop. You know, Taylor Swift has aspects of hip hop. They mm-hmm. understand and they study this and they copy it because it is the global force. You know, you go to Africa, you go to Europe, you go to China, Asia, it's all hip hop. And no one thought this 50 years ago, no one thought this 25 years ago, that it would become such a big thing. And as you were mentioning, Bob, I mean, um, Bill, about Wu-Tang Clan, which I'm very impressed that you're a Wu-Tang fan. <laughs> I love them. These guys, you know, go into a studio and they kind of come up with the stuff and they, they make it happen. And it's always very, very compelling. So, Ernie, I want you to talk to us a little bit about the documentary, The South Has Got Something to Say. Um, You and I, well, you are involved with the documentary. I first saw the trailer at the National Association of Black Journalists convention this summer. The AJC had a big party and they debuted the trailer and it was so well received. The Ryan and Tyson, I'm sh- if they showed it once, they showed it a half dozen times. They might have showed it a dozen times. We just kept asking them to play it over and over again because it was just so magical, the trailer. Tell us more about what we, what's to come, what, what's in the movie, who's in the movie. Yeah, it's as I mentioned in, in the trailer, you're, you're right. The trailer was great, but the movie is even even better. And what Ryan and Tyson and DeAsia Page, who's another reporter at the paper, uh, the four of us put it together. And what we were able to do is basically put in a room, and I'm just saying this metaphorically, every major rap figure, hip-hop figure in Atlanta. 
pretty much everyone. So you're going to see some people are, are missing. But we got them in a room just to talk about the evolution of this. And we used the 1995 Source Awards, and that's the name of the, of the movie, The South Got Something to Say. And if you follow Outcast and you know what that phrase means, that's when Andre 3000 goes on stage and says that the South got something to say in terms of music and what we are and who we are. And this was a direct shot at New York City, a direct shot at Los Angeles, which were at that time dominating the rap and hip hop scene and ignoring Atlanta. And Andre said, hey, we're here. So that's what the narrative hook of the movie is, is that Atlanta is here. So we tell that story. And as I mentioned, it is a story. So I think, you know, if you were to go into this as not a hip hop fan, you will also come out of it as a fan of history. Or if you're going into it as a history fan, you will get the history of Atlanta from the civil rights movement to Maynard Jackson's election to um, the, the Atlanta child murders up until 2020 through a soundtrack of hip hop, which came along throughout that evolution of Atlanta. Ernie, leading up to the premiere, the unapologetically ATL team has also put out um, several top 50 lists. Walk us through some of those. Yeah, we have two top 50 lists. And, and we want this. We want these lists to be controversial. We want people to talk about it and be mad at us. But we pick. <laughs> <laughs> We're mad. We pick the top fifty Atlanta artists, and we pick the top fifty Atlanta rap songs. So, if you uh, can share the link um, to the uh, ajc.com backslash hip hop uh, page, you will find both of those playlists on there and both of those stories. And, you know, we don't rank the songs, nor do we rank the artists because we didn't want to be too controversial. But we have, you know, you know, some really, really good stuff there. So if you're a hip hop fan or if you if you want to get into hip hop, uh, Patricia, I know you love it. And I'm sorry, you know Bill, we don't have, Bill, we don't have any Wu-Tang Clang on there because they're from Staten Island. Right. But we have somebody else from Atlanta on there. <laughs> Okay, Ernie. Well, those are not ranked, but we're going to make you do some rankings right now because by popular demand, everybody in this studio wants to know your all-time favorite hip-hop song and your favorite Atlanta rappers, both old school and new school. Well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I was born in in Brooklyn, so my hip-hop sensibilities are still kind of, you know, nestled in New York. we We hear the accent, yep. My favorite all-time rap song is um, "Fight the Power." But if I were oh. to "Fight the Power" by Public Enemy, but if I were to say Atlanta, I would say "Get Up and Get Out" by Outkast, and that is on their first album, Southern Playlistic. And the reason I love that song, and I want you all to go and find it after you finish listening to me, is because it directly talks about Atlanta. It directly name drops Maynard Jackson. Directly name drops Camelton Road. And it talks about the grit and the grime of early 1990s Atlanta in a way that had never been done before. And I don't think it's been done since. And it was like kind of Outkast's first hit. It features the Goody Mob. So I think it's a very, very important song. And it's kind of funky. Um, and my favorite group is, you know, I, Outkast. Everyone says Outkast. I won't say Outkast out, because they are my favorite group. But I'll, I'm going to say Goody Mob. <laughs> Because, you know, um, everyone's going to say Outkast. But I'm going to just say, I'm going to give a shout out to Goody Mob because they're kind of like, you know, Outkast's big brother. They all came from the Dungeon family. They all came from that same family tree of punk music. Um, and they produced some really good stuff. CeeLo Green came out about uh, Goody Mob. So Goody Mob would be my favorite group and Get Up and Get Out would be my favorite song. Okay, fantastic. So, so much of this is about um, the history of hip hop and rap and Atlanta. What do you think is the future? Uh, well, in terms of 
trick music, the future of hip hop and rap is trap music. And trap music is kind of that, um, that, that subgenre that was uh, popularized by T.I. And obviously, and, and it's a very controversial movement because it talks a lot about drugs, talks a lot about the game hustling, so to speak. A trap for, the, for your listeners, a trap music talks about trap houses and trap houses are drug houses. That's the popular form of music right now, trap music. So I think that's the, that's the present and that's probably the future. But I think overall, I think that Atlanta is going to still continue to grow. Atlanta still has a lot of very creative people. Outcast is still out there. There's talk about them kind of coming up with the new album. Killer Mike probably has the, the uh, most critically acclaimed rap album of the year so far. Uh, T.I. is still out there doing stuff. Uh, so I think the future is really, really bright. We have a lot of young women out there. Uh, women have not been very well represented in rap music in Atlanta over the last years, but I think that's changing a little bit now. So I think the future is, is very bright. Okay, terrific. So uh, the November 2nd premiere, how can people get tickets to attend? Yeah, just go to the website, ajc.com backslash or slash hip hop. That's our uh, landing page for all things hip hop relating to this movie and all the stories that we've written, all the stories that uh, the Asia page and I have written. And there's a link to how to get a uh, ticket to uh, this, the November 2nd premiere, which is going to be amazing at center stage. Okay, and we're going to have a lot of people who are in the movie, um, who are stars of the movie, who will be there live in person, okay. hanging out, so you can get a chance to meet some of your favorite rappers. Very cool. Well, listen, Ernie, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you really for bringing this kind of art to the AJC and to AJC audiences and, and to Atlanta as well. I think this is going to be a really big event and we are all going to um, learn and enjoy and we're all going to go um, do some searches on your favorite rap music that you just told right. us about as well. Thanks for being with us, Ernie. I want everybody to slack me their favorite song. A hundred percent. Hey, Ernie, Ernie, the revolution yeah. will not be televised. It will not be that televised. That takes you back. It, that, that's some pre that's some pre rap stuff right yep. there. Okay. Yep. Thank well, you all. Oh, thanks so much, Ernie. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And we're back with Politically Georgia from the AJC, where our colleagues are working around the clock to keep you informed on all of the developments in the Fulton County case against Donald Trump. And now the AJC is putting all of our coverage into one place with the Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. Sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Patricia Murphy, along with Bill Nygut, Tia Mitchell, and Greg Bluestein. And of course, always in studio with us is Shane. And I don't want to get too much further before I mention that Natalie Mendenhall, Ooh. our new producer, Woo! is also here with us in the studio. We are thrilled to have Natalie. Welcome, she, Natalie. Yeah, she doesn't have a microphone in front of her, so we can't put her on the spot for any pop quizzes or 
the questions would be how much do you love us? So that would we already know the answer to that. We know that we absolutely love Natalie and we're thrilled that she's with us. Um, now we're going to dip into the mailbag with Shane and Shane's around here somewhere. Shane, what's going on in the mailbag? Well, we have plenty of calls to the mailbag. By the way, the listener mailbag, the number, it's a 24-hour number where you can call, leave your question, and we will play it back and answer it on the Friday listener mailbag segment here on Politically Georgia. Uh, That number is 404-526-AJCP, 404-526-2527. Our first call comes from Phil in Roswell. He has a question about the district attorney oversight bill. Could Senate Bill 92 be used to remove the attorney general of Georgia as a prosecuting attorney? Thank you. Phil, that is a fascinating question. My uh, early guess is no, (laughs) because that bill was written by a group of people who weren't looking to get rid of the uh, current attorney general. But Greg, tell us the details about that bill. Yeah, I don't think it could be. A legal expert might email me later on and say, here's why it could. But look, I'm looking at the statute. I just pulled that up really quickly. I looked at the statute right now. It specifically refers to district attorneys and solicitors general um, under the guise of the Prosecuting Attorneys Qualifications Commission, um, not an Attorney General of Georgia. And I agree with you, Patricia. It was not written. It was written. Look, it was when, when we were reporting on the debate over this legislation, um, there were Republicans and Democrats who were brought up. Fonnie Willis was never brought up by any supporters on the floor of the of the state uh, of the state capitol. Uh, of either either Senate or the House, but we heard lots of names of Republican DAs and Democratic DAs, particularly Deborah Gonzalez in, in Athens. Chris Carr's name was not mentioned, though. I would also think that since the Attorney General is a constitutional officer protected in the state constitution, it oh, would probably yes. be tougher to remove them by statute. Um, you know, and constitutional officer. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Tia, for that. Really? Constitutional expert, Tia. I mentioned. know. Thank you, Tia. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to our next question from Robert and Alexandria. Y'all need to give Tia a lot more credit for her part-time C-SPAN <laughs> gigs uh, hosting Washington Journal. Uh, as I think we all know, it's one of the toughest jobs in political journalism. Thanks a lot. Bye. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, that's nice. I do want to say, so Tia, our listeners may or may not know, some of you probably do know, that along with um, being our AJC Washington correspondent and a co-author of The Jolt and a co-host of the show, Tia is also a co-host on C-SPAN's Washington Journal, which is literally one of my favorite shows. So I see Tia on there quite a bit. It's very fun to do. Um, people always ask me, how do you keep a straight face? Because it's a TV show and we get a lot of callers, some interesting callers, but it's actually really fun to do. Tia, I have always wanted to ask a host this. How do you know when to just hang up on people? Because sometimes they're just like, thank you. It's a skill because they, and when I was, you know, starting out, they would say, Tia, don't be so nice. If you need to let them go, you go wrap. Okay, we got your point. We got your point. Thank you so much. What's the weirdest question you've gotten so far? Oh, um, you just have some people go on tangents that don't have anything to do with the subject at hand. Of course, you get people who say some not so nice things or they use not so nice language. So um, it's never a boring day and it's never the same. Tia, why does that uh, caller say that it's the hardest job in television? I think it's the straight face thing. People wonder how 
and I host mm-hmm. a couple of times yeah. a month. I'm a fill-in host, but people say, how do you keep a straight face even when you get some of the more out there comments? Yeah. Um, C-SPAN is a very specific audience. Our callers <laughs> are, you know, they're very politically engaged, but, um, you know, People, that's what I think that's what Phil. So, Phil, that was very nice of you to, um, not Phil, I'm sorry, Robert. Robert, that was very nice of you to give me a shout out. Have you ever broken? Have you ever like stifled the I smile? I think every now and then I'll, like one time, okay, here's one. Recently, a guy called me and he was like, before I get to the serious news, Every time you're on the show, your hair is different, and I love it. And and he was very correct. I change my hair quite often, and so I thought it was really sweet, so that made me laugh. Okay, well, that's a good one. If you have to break your your stony demeanor, that's the the perfect way to do it. Hey, Tia, do you think that the listener mailbag segment has helped you deal with crazy calls? Or vice versa. Vice versa. I mean, I think our listener mailbag is interesting because we get some interesting uh, listener calls as well. So it keeps us on both C-SPAN and the mailbag. Keep us on our toes. Okay. Well, now, speaking of being on our toes, that brings us to our next and potentially favorite segment of the week. It's our Who's Up and Who's Down. We always want to end on a high note, so we're going to start with our who's downs. Greg, who's your who's down? I would say my who's down is going to be, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say Congressman Rich McCormick. I know that with the um, with the new maps and with the potential of a redrawing of districts, it could affect multiple districts. My gut keeps on telling me that Republican lawmakers will go after the most junior member mm-hmm. of, the, uh, of the House delegation. Um, someone whose re- district was redrawn um, to, to be a very ruby red district, someone who won without Donald Trump's endorsement, someone who almost won uh, back in 2020, in, in, in back in the old 7th district, uh, and was defeated by Carolyn Bordeaux, a Democrat. Um, Rich McCormick has quickly made a name for himself at the Capitol, but I, I do think if lawmakers have to uh, go and go kind of gut one of their own, it might be the guy who never served in the Georgia legislature, unlike some other members of, of, of the House delegation, and also is the newest one on the, on the block. I'm going to say my who's down is Jim Jordan because the argument against him becoming speaker was that he was too far right, too conservative. And then Mike Johnson of Louisiana becomes speaker and he's just as far right and just as conservative. So I'm sure Jim Jordan somewhere like, well, why not me then? It's because some people just don't like you, right. Jim. Just don't some people like just don't like you. Bill, who's your who's down? So I'm going to go national with who's down and come back to Georgia with who's up. My who's down is Ron DeSantis um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, just a week or so ago, it was revealed that he's running so short of cash in his campaign, he's letting his super PAC never back down pay for the airplane that he uses to fly around. But here's why I really picked him this week. We know that he's several points up in the latest polls in Iowa over Nikki Haley, but he clearly, and he's obviously far behind Donald Trump, but clearly he's now worried about Nikki Haley in Iowa because his super PAC has started running an ad attacking her because as governor of South Carolina, she rolled out the red carpet to China businesses and talked about them in very positive ways. My sense is that when you're worried about the person who 
who is at about 10% in the polling uh, and going after her, you really are in some trouble. Yeah, and Nikki Hamlin, she had a terrific performance in these debates. Uh, I think they have a good reason to be worried about Nikki Haley. Uh, My who's down is Congressman Austin Scott, 0 for 2 as a House Speaker (laughs) candidate. The first run, I completely understood. The second run, I wasn't quite understanding why that second run happened, but he will remain as a senior member of the House Armed Services Committee, so he'll still have plenty of power um, at the end of the day. Greg, who is your who's up? My who's up is Georgia State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, who uh, Thursday night was awarded the Weltner Freedom of Information Award by the Georgia First Amendment Foundation. It was a packed house. I was one of the many, many hundreds of attendees of that great awards banquet, uh, Mary Margaret Oliver, who is a friend of this show and has often come on and talked about policy and politics uh, with us over the years, uh, gave a, a keynote address that got a standing ovation after standing ovation. And she is a, uh, as, as Dubois Porter said, who introduced her, said she put the sunshine in the Sunshine Act in Georgia. Tia, who's your who's up? My who's up is um, Fair Fight and the other voting rights groups that challenged the uh, Georgia maps, the the redistricting case. Um, Again, not just that the judge ruled in their favor, but because there's a lot of recent court rulings, there's a lot of new case law that kind of, for a judge to rule in their favor with all the recent case law, to me, makes it more likely than not that they'll ultimately um, be upheld. Mm, That's so interesting. Bill, who is your who's up? My who's up is Fonnie Willis. Um, She has shown now that um, even though uh, there are those who started out when she indicted 19 people in the RICO case said, that's absurd, you can't build a RICO case around all of these defendants, the courtroom will be a mess, Um, And then more recently, when you've had critics say she's got nothing but minor charges in plea deals against people like uh, Sidney Powell, uh, Scott Hall, uh, Jenna Ellis, and who am I leaving out? uh, The fourth. uh, Ken Chesbro. Ken Chesbro. But the fact of the matter is, is our colleague Tamar Hellerman points out, this is exactly how you build a RICO case. You get the lower order people, although you could argue Chesborough's a bigger fish, but nevertheless, you start going after them one by one, getting plea deals, immunity deals possibly, until you work your way up the ladder. So while the critics, many of them Republicans, suggest that this these plea deals show she has no case at all, the reality is she's doing exactly what it takes to build a case. Now, in the long run, will Donald Trump Will Rudolph Giuliani, uh, will John Eastman, will any of these people be found guilty in a trial? We have no way of knowing that, but this is how you build the case against them. So she's really my person who's up this week. Yeah, and Fonnie Willis has all kinds of experience with those RICO cases, Bill. Um, She obviously brought a RICO case against the Atlanta teachers Mm -hmm. and the Atlanta teacher scandal. She is doing it right now with the um, with the young uh, thug. Yeah, with the young thug group, a huge, huge, sprawling RICO case in that in that trial as well. So it's something she's obviously very comfortable with and has brought in one of her very own kind of top prosecutors who is a RICO specialist mm-hmm. on this case. So, yeah, you're exactly right. She was questioned for doing the RICO charges, but it, it is, um, the dominoes all appear to be falling toward Donald Trump right now. Yeah. And um, my who's up is Congressman Mike Johnson 
little known, now soon to be internationally famous <laughs> Speaker of the House. We don't know how long he'll be the Speaker of the House. We don't know if this entire episode has damaged Republicans' prospects in the 2024 elections. But, I mean, listen, if we know anything, a, a day is a year and a year is a day in politics. So um, anything could happen for those House Republicans. At least they have a well-dressed man as speaker. <laughs> he could be a spiffy, as you said. A tidy, spiffy, tidy and spiffy. Those horn rim glasses just say, America, I've got it all under control. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for today's podcast. We're now releasing new episodes every weekday. So look for new additions to hit your podcast app sometime around one o'clock weekdays. All of this leads up to the Monday debut of our new Politically Georgia radio show, which will air weekday mornings at 10 a.m. on WABE. Join us again Monday for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com.